Today we are talking to Alan Dybert, and Alan is an independent consultant. Hi, Alan. Hi. Uh, great to have you on the show. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk about Hoplon. Um, so um, I think you, you're the best person, actually, actually, to talk about the genesis of all of this. So uh, where do we start? Well, we could start around the year 2012. Mm -hmm. um, so Closure Script has been out, but those of us who were around then might remember that Closure Script, when it was released, it didn't really propose uh, a philosophy or a framework or, or any kind of new architecture because the selling point then and today is that you should be able to do anything you can do in JavaScript with Closure Script. So you could to the to include using um, JavaScript front-end frameworks or using parts of Google Closure runtime environment to um, to make your own framework or, or approach. Um, so there was a time period when there was a lot of excitement about Closure Script and a lot of interest in the the benefits of I don't know what some people might call air quote real functional programming in the browser um, with access to immutable data structures and closures, polymorphism mechanisms and so on. Mm -hmm. And so a bunch of people at the time were doing, doing work in this area. Um, one of the people who did maybe the most innovative work, which preceded even any of my efforts was um, Conrad Barsky. He wrote the book land of lisp. Mm -hmm. And he gave a presentation at ClojureConj 2012 or 2013. And he basically invented the React approach, although he did it independently and in ClojureScript. Um, and it either went over or under everyone's head <laughs> at the time. I don't, none of us really knew what we were looking at. It was so such a radical departure from the way that anyone had conceptualized applications at the time. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of his project. I have to look that up. Uh, WebFui, W-E-B-F-U-I. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, if you're enthusiastic about React and Closure Script, that would be an interesting watch. I believe that his talk is available, but it sort of presents an alternate reality where React was invented by a Closure Script person. <laughs> um, but anyway, I saw his talk, and certainly as a web developer, I was confronted with all of the same uh, constraints that we are today in, in the space, more or less, um, which are the combination of constraints imposed by the browser platform and the combination of constraints and difficulties associated with making UIs. Um, and, you know, the browser is here to stay and also the problem of making UIs is here to stay. So it made sense then, as it makes sense now, to spend time to think about how to go about that. Um, so I, n neither me nor anyone else really understood the, uh, what WebFui was or did, um, but there was a buzzword floating around at the time and for many years previous, previous to that even called FRP, which is a paradigm uh, acronym that stands for functional reactive programming. And it's an attempt Originally, it was an attempt at a formalism, uh, a type-level formalism surrounding the concept of variables that change over time and the introduction of a value that represented another value that was changing over time. So kind of like a meta variable. Mm -hmm. And then what are the semantics of systems where you're composing these streams of values? I mean, you know, Stream is another term that's thrown around to represent the mm -hmm. idea of a succession of values that have a, an identity distinct from the values contained in the succession. Um, that all makes sense so far? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Cool. So there were a few extant FRP projects in JavaScript. Um, foremost among them, at least in terms of my ability to understand it at the time, was called Flapjacks. And it began life as a dialect of JavaScript that supported syntax and operators for doing this 
um, functional reactive composition. But there was also a runtime component which managed the relationship between these variables at, at runtime. So there's, you know, when you have a, basically a system of dependencies, data dependencies, and when new data comes in, uh, existing relationships need to be updated by some semantic. Um, and the semantic you choose is going to result in different properties and affordances of your overall library. So mm -hmm. um, the idea in Flapjacks that was amenable to Clojure and ClojureScript was that the definition of a new value is not that a new val an attempt to introduce a new value was put in, but it is the identity of that value. So for example, if you're, you know, those of us who had been doing browser stuff previous to this typically would orient the construction of our software around events. You know, if you built an app with jQuery, you know that it's all about custom events, triggering events, responding to events. Um, and you build something like a state machine using, using events. Um, well, the, the paradigm shift, if you will, with FRP and with Flapjacks in particular was the idea that, no, um, let's get away from events and move back to values. So if the user clicks a button with the number three on it, that action is effectively idempotent because all they're doing is introducing the same value into the system over and over again. And if we want to represent, if we want to capture some domain level activity, like there is significance in the user clicking the button, then we need to synthesize a new value by using like a timestamp or a gensim or something like that. So, but the, the underlying idea here is that you want to build your relationships between functions in terms of values, not in terms of points in time. And so that's sort of the philosophy put forward by Flapjacks and anyone who uses ClojureScript now would see how appealing that sounded <laughs> at the time, especially people who have exposure to Datomic, which I did at the time also. Mm -hmm. um, so everything about Flapjacks made a lot of sense. And as a JavaScript library, later the runtime component was spun out into a, a JavaScript library that you could use from JavaScript. Um, as, a, as a library, it was usable from ClojureScript. You could use the uh, means of combination exposed by this library and you could build, you know, you could use ClojureScript together with the Flapjacks library to make the Flapjacks demo apps. Um, but, and that for, for uh, I don't know, like six months or something, it seemed like that was the way, way to go. Um, but there remained questions and problems that maybe... I'm not sure the Flapjacks authors encountered because I don't think they used Flapjacks professionally after they created it. Now, it's a fantastic project, and the paper is incredibly clear. Uh, that's that's something I'd recommend anyone to read who has any interest in FRP. It was really the one paper that helped me understand the paradigm. Um, but the, you know, it left open questions and open problems that would ha it had to be confronted by anyone who tried to use this technology uh, industrially, which was me at the time. Mm. Um, the first problem was that the set of values in JavaScript at the time and still is uh, really numbers and strings and booleans. Those are the only things with, you know, uh, an equality semantic. Um, so immutable. Yeah, they're immutable. Uh, and you can use triple equal to tell if they're the same. And it's not right. pointer equality, it's, you know, semantic equality. Uh, but, What's the difference? Um, so you can have, like in C or some language where you have the ability to request memory from the system, mm -hmm. you can request an element, or you can request an array of length three, and you put the numbers, say you put the integers one, two, three into each slot. Mm -hmm. Well, as far as the computer is concerned, the definition of that data structure is the pointer the, to the beginning of the segment that you've requested. And in a lot of cases, it's useful to use that kind of pointer equality because you can do things like make an array like that, pass it to some other function. And if that function returns to you the same array, then you can know that by just comparing what you got back to the pointer you originally put in. And then you can know uh, whether or not 
the function allocated new memory or if it gave you memory that you had previously allocated. But crucially, what you don't know, even if the pointers are equal, is did they mutate you know, the element at slot 2, which would be the number 3, or not? And mm-hmm. to determine that, um, the simplest thing you could do is you just need to make a, you know, a double for loop and walk both structures uh, element-wise and determine if they differ. And if you encounter any substructure, then you need to walk that too. And you're basically doing a diff, a structural comparison. Um, and you have the advantage that you can exit early, like because you need all you need to do is support equality. You don't need to actually generate a diff. You know, the moment you encounter some nested element that is not present in the other structure, then you know they're not equal, and so you can just you know break out of that. Um, mm-hmm. But that is the kind of comparison that closures immutable data structures make efficient because they offer us a way to build compound structures, nested structures, such that uh, we can uh, depend on the fact that if we have a pointer to an existing structure, we know that its children structures are going to be identical. So we don't need to do that recursive uh or you know that depth depth first walk of the, of the structure to to know if it's equal to another structure. If the pointers are different, then we know they must be different data. Data, mm-hmm. and um, I guess there's a lot of talks and materials on how exactly that's performed. But at a high level, the cost of adding things there's a slightly higher cost to add things to these structures, so it kind of amortizes. Um, and then they have they're basically trees, but because of the way the it's the hash array map tree thing is because of the way it works. Um, they have something like the efficiency of, of hash tables. Mm-hmm. Um, the so sharing. JavaScript crucially doesn't have these things built in. You have, you have mutable sets, maps and arrays, but there's nothing like closure scripts, data structures. So if you want to build something like flapjacks, but that works with compound structures, you have to, um, build into that system some kind of equality semantic like the one closure has. Uh, sorry, were you going to jump in with something? No, I just, uh, you just were talking about the closure data structures and I just put in like the structural sharing. This is what you were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so, um, JavaScript doesn't have such a thing. Flapjacks didn't have such a thing. ClojureScript has such a thing. And what we found after some use of Flapjacks is that for the use of Flapjacks to be beneficial, at a minimum, we needed to modify the library so that it uh, incorporated ClojureScript's definition of identity. So we needed, like, basically deep somewhere inside Flapjacks, there was a triple equal that we needed to replace with a function call to ClojureCore equal. And once we realized we would have to modify the library to make it work intuitively with closure style functional programming, then we thought, oh, well, we should make our own. And that's what Javelin was. It was more or less a port of Flapjacks to ClojureScript um, and combines closure idioms and data structures with parts of the Flapjacks API. So yeah, that was a, I think that was the first part of so Hoplon, Hoplon consists of several libraries and that was the first library that we released publicly. So um, I, we can go both ways. Either we can discuss more in detail the Javelin or we can talk about the other libraries that you put together. What would you prefer? Um, I think I think, we, I think this line of uh, discussion will lead naturally to the other library. So I might just keep rolling okay. <laughs> if you're okay with it. Yeah. Sure. Um, so we, you know, we we sort of overcome that milestone. We we had identified the ideas from FRP that were useful, and we'd combined them with Closure Script in a way that seemed useful. Um, but that, you know, it's like any software thing. You figure out some problem, and you feel good about yourself, and then you realize that you just made way more. You know, now you can see other problems that you also have to fix in order to get to where you want to go. Um, so the problem after we did Javelin was that uh, 
we needed to figure out an IO layer for Javelin, which is it's great that we rolled up FRP into ClojureScript, but at the end of the day, one needs to synchronize updates to the DOM with updates to these immutable data structures. And there are a few different approaches to this. Uh, foremost among them now is React. This is the essential problem of React, uh, mm -hmm. which is you have data structures and you have a DOM and you need to synchronize the DOM with the data structures. And um, so we were, we were confronted with that problem, but we had a few advantages uh, that made the problem for us less generic. Um, one of them was that all of our diff, all of our not equality diffing. So the cases where React compares your JavaScript data structure uh, to a part of the DOM tree, um, it is informed only by the, like it doesn't it doesn't know anything about the closure script or the JavaScript side of those data structures. There aren't any properties beyond those associated with the basic properties of like an associative data structure. Um, so it has to do something like that naive equality check I, I mentioned earlier in order to come up mm -hmm. with a diff. And in, in React these days and in similar libraries, they do a lot of heuristics that make the computing uh, practical, but mm -hmm. theoretically it's, it's an expensive operation. Um, but we had the advantage of knowing that our, uh, when we handed our version of React a couple pointers, it knew whether or not they'd changed because of closure structural equality. And I believe things like Reagent now take advantage of this when they adapt React to this problem. Mm -hmm. um, but we found that we could get away with an even simpler way of doing it, which was, uh, at the time, we called it the end things problem. But one thing we realized is that uh, in a tree, of data. So you have like a, what you end up with with Javelin is you have named mutable cells, we call them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily need to be named, but presumably the user is has them let bound or you know top level deft or whatever. Um, each contains a concrete closure script data structure. Mm -hmm. um, and none of those data structures are infinite. I mean, they could be technically, but as we know, uh, laziness is to be avoided if you can help it in closure. <laughs> so the number of pieces of data that we need to project into the DOM at any point in time is going to be finite. Um, and that was a simplification of the problem that made the solution much easier to think about. Um, because I think as programmers, we're sort of trained to consider the, the unbounded case. Mm -hmm. Um, but in this case, we realize, oh, no, no, that, I mean, there's a finite amount of data that, that's there. And of the data that's managed, there's an even smaller amount of it that's capable of fitting on the user's screen. So, and it, you know, most web apps necessarily do some amount of windowing of the data, not the UI. But I mean, you know, if you have 100 or if you have 10,000 entries in some piece of data in JavaScript, you're not going to show the user 10,000 pieces of data. You're going to show them a page worth, and then you're going to give them search and pagination. Um, so we came up with a simple operator called for template. And what it does is it is a, an output operator in another library called HLISP, which is now what is now called Hoplon. But what that does is that takes a cell containing some sequential data structure, so a part of the data flow graph containing a sequential data structure. And it manages DOM elements uh, in one dimension. So compared to React, it doesn't handle the tree, but it handles one dimension of changes. So if that cell changes, it will uh, smartly resize the DOM children, depending on the size of that sequential mm -hmm. collection inside the cell as the cell changes. And if... And when data comes and goes, new DOM elements are not being created; uh, they're being reused. So it kind of uses a pool. It uses a pool of DOM elements, and each of them is independently managed uh, and kept out of the DOM until they're necessary. And so the size of elements that's kept in the pool 
will always be equal to at least the maximum size of the sequence in the cell at any given time. Um, and obviously, you know, if you have a hundred things in your in your vector that you're projecting into a to-do list, and then you go to 10 things, there will only be 10 things in the DOM after all is said and done, but there will be 90 DOM elements in the pool ready to be mm -hmm. used. Um, and uh, yeah, this is basically a reduced, a one-dimensional, so not tree version of what React does, but the computation of what needs to be done and what needs to be changed is reduced to closure sequences instead of closure trees. Um, so it's a less general and it has its own warts, but that's basically how we do output uh, in Hoplon is with the, that, that for TPL, we call it the template um, operator. So from what you said and what I understood is like React will sort of uh, do, if there is an update in the tree, it will just go through all the tree and just update the stuff that needs to be updated, where in Hoplon you track of which exactly part changed and then you do this sort of like uh, doctors like change with the scalpel and says, this is the only part I need to change. Exactly. And that's the word that comes to mind for me, like when I think about it and talk about it and compare it to React is precision. It mm -hmm. leverages everything we know about the relationships and data on in, in the Javelin graph um, mm -hmm. so that a minimal set of DOM operations ends up being performed. And I haven't, I haven't thought completely through it to determine, uh, you know, formally from, you know, from a complexity theory standpoint, how it mm -hmm. compares to uh, the React algorithm, either in theory or practice. But I do know that it, like, it basically works as far as just making web apps for industry. Um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, there are very few surprises and, um, because of the reuse of the elements, this is actually a, a, a material difference between the two approaches. Um, because we reuse the DOM nodes and we're not creating new DOM nodes whenever new data appears, uh, we don't have to batch events. So because React claims complete ownership of the DOM nodes that it manages on your behalf, uh, they need to add APIs for their event batching and pooling systems. And so there's a, you know, there's a, an interface over the DOM for managing uh, React uh, events from the React side that originate from React created elements, which you need to buy into to use React effectively. Um, and because of the, the relative simplicity of the template approach, um, I think Hoplon apps generally are feel closer to the DOM. There isn't as much of an API between you and the DOM. And um, granted, you know, when we were doing this, and even when React originally came out, a lot of people were in the position of needing to introduce React into existing apps and, you know, uh, uh, interoperate with existing jQuery plugins or interoperate with existing Angular apps. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that particular aspect of event management was a uh, matter to us at the time. But I think in modern terms, people who are using React are using React for everything and aren't as concerned about, you know, interoperating with jQuery plugins. So, uh, yeah, that may or may not be an actual advantage at this point in time. Uh, when you were talking about the lifecycle, uh, so when you're talking about the API of React, uh, that it just manages everything for you, you meant the lifecycle methods, right? The component did mount, unmount. And all That's stuff. right, exactly. Mm -hmm. right. Yep. Yeah, one of the... So I, before we started, I, I mentioned to Yatsik that, or you, sorry, <laughs> that, um, you know, there, there have been a few, I've been kind of out of the closure script game for a while, but I continue to think about it and have little changes in perceptions as it becomes more retrospective for me. But um, I think one way to look at React is it is the closure.core equals that JavaScript is missing. Because it is a, it is a system of building structures and comparing them for equality, which is the thing that JavaScript is missing and is the thing that makes it hard to manage data in the JavaScript application. So it makes sense that React integrates well with ClojureScript, and I think it also makes sense that React um, serves a lot of the same purposes to folks coming from the JavaScript side that we enjoy from the ClojureScript side, which is 
you have a way to reason about and deal with tree structures and compound structures um, that you don't have natively. And uh, so I think, you know, React offers the same concept, some of the same conceptual affordances that the ClojureScript way of doing it does. There's one little thing I want to add on to that previous thought, which is um, in, in years since I've also studied Common Lisp, and mm-hmm. maybe one of the biggest differences between Common Lisp and Clojure is that Clojure's equality operation is well-defined by the language, and there's a protocol for imp- implementing it, and it deals with these compound structures, as we've discussed. Um, Common Lisp does not have such a construct, does not have an operator like that. Uh, there are, I think... Yeah, if you want something like that, you have to make it yourself. And as a closure person coming to Common Lisp, this is striking to me because I'm thinking, how do you how do you program? <laughs> if you don't have equality, how do you know if your lists are different? Like, how do you know what to do? Mm-hmm. Um, but the I, I looked into it some, and the argument made by the designers is basically that equality is domain dependent. A programming language, if it defines equality for you, then it's taken away too much leverage from you. Um, which I don't know if I agree with. Maybe that's contextual uh, at best, but it's an interesting difference nonetheless. And I think as I've distanced myself from the closure way of thinking and learned other ways of programming, uh, it struck me that, oh, that is something that closure defines, but there are trade-offs there uh, that someone programming in closure may not even necessarily be aware of because it's such a fluid uh, experience. So anyway, I just want to tack that on. Interesting. Yeah. So the story of Hoplon, so after, I guess it was 2012, 2013 is when we start, started to talk publicly about Javelin and HLISP and giving talks and stuff. Um, I think 20, then Misha did Closiature. Um, and I think his talk there is probably the definitive one on Hoplon. I think that's uh, of the ones that both he and I have given, I think he did the best job of all of us. So that's the one I would encourage people to check out. Um, really, Hoplon became something like feature complete around 2015. Um, and because it didn't rely on any other libraries, uh, it hasn't had to change necessarily because libraries were changing. Mm-hmm. Um, but its history was looped into the history of Boot, which was the build tool that we initially conceived as to, as part of the Hoplon project, and then it later took on a life of its own. Mm. Um, so while Hoplon was done, there was a lot of movement with boot, and I don't think boot was as... I think like the needs of a build tool are just so, so much more diverse than the needs of a web framework that it was much harder to make boot complete than it was for for Hoplon. Like once we were done with Hoplon, we pretty much knew all the all the problems that we faced and how we solved them, and it was easy to compare it to other things, and we knew the advantages and disadvantages. Um, with Boot, we had something like that experience, and we were using it to build a web app, which is like the hardest thing you can do with a build tool, probably. Um, but I, I'm I'm not sure it was ultimately good for us to try and sell it as a general purpose build tool because I think. Um, people started to use it for things that that weren't web apps and they wanted to integrate it into you know maven infrastructure and they wanted to use it for things that we hadn't ourselves used it for and i think any time that you um, describe a tool as general then you uh impart to people a, a an expectation and i'm not sure boot met those expectations and i think it might have been our messaging um mm. but uh, suffice to say, both projects are still relatively actively developed, at least as <laughs> as far as closure projects go, and they both have users. Um, I would say there's still users and momentum with Hoplon, and less so with Boot. Um, but it's definitely the case that you don't need to use Boot to use Hoplon anymore. Um, and that's that's been true for like five years, but uh, I don't know if that that process is well documented anywhere. Uh, we had a mm. about a year ago, a, a, an enthusiastic user came in to the uh, Clojurean Slack Hoplon channel, which is mm. still marginally inhabited, um, and made an example project showing how to do that. Uh, but I don't think he ended up documenting it formally. But 
if you show up in the channel, like we, that's something we can help with. Uh, even though my hand is mostly out of it, uh, I can still point to point to projects or documents that might be helpful. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Let's see that takes that us to boot hoplon. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Can I use hoplon without boot? So yeah, yeah, you you can. You definitely can. I know it's possible. <laughs> um, because, yeah, and, and I don't think it would be that hard to do because Hoplon is is on Clojars. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just Clojure script stuff that you can require. Um, right. The stuff that we require some experimentation is, is the entry point because that was the thing that we made automatic with boot is if you made a Hoplon app with boot, we'd set up your index page and fire your main function for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just the part that you need to do yourself now in some in some minimal piece of javascript or closure script mm-hmm. um well you sent me the, the big list of ideas and i think one of the ones that we haven't talked on at all is the communication with the back end right mm-hmm. castra rpc right. and cqrs mm-hmm. um so originally uh i guess i haven't talked much about the kinds of apps that we were building with hoplon but uh i worked closely with misha niskin who's mm-hmm. collaborated on all these projects with me and from whom most of the ideas are derived. Um, but he and I made ordering systems and we worked in for like CRUD apps, like or line of business type apps. And there was a, an architectural view that seemed to hold water, which was the idea of uh, something like what, now would be called um what's the facebook thing uh, which facebook thing not the the uh, the server side schema thing um it's not so re- relay uh one second graphql uh, graphql yeah yeah so mm-hmm. we had we had ideas of something like graphql because in the in the front end we had um Closure script data structures in cells, and mm-hmm. the cells were connected with functions. There were formulas, and we thought, well, to make this uh, a web app with a backend, you just need to put a cell on the backend, mm-hmm. so we could reduce our connectivity to the operators required by Hoplon. And when we thought about it that way, the shape of it was kind of like the projecting of the DOM problem that I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. It seemed like you know, we should be able to communicate in terms of a minimal set of differences between what the server knew about and what the client knew about. Um, but we never, I mean, we did, towards that end, we did arrive at an intermediate system for doing RPC called Castra. Mm-hmm. And all that is, is a set of conventions for calling closure functions from ClojureScript and add some uh, bonus features, like you can use metadata on your closure side functions to determine uh, whether or not they should be callable from the front end. And I, I'm sure other things like this exist in the closure world too. Uh, there was even one at the time, name escapes me. Um, so, you know, we had this grand, this grand glorious vision for how we were gonna like solve this comprehensively. Um, we ended up with a middle ground thing called Castro that proved useful. Um, but since then, I think my perspective on interacting with the backend has uh, progressed in a manner similar to my perspective on equality, which is that you have to choose the way of communicating with the backend that matches the kind of app you have. Like there isn't a general, there isn't a perfectly general way to do that. Mm-hmm. All of the different ways have trade-offs, and you just have to kind of learn the trade-offs and try and make a good choice. Um, which is not to say that Castro is not useful and or not still used. It is. It's very small, straightforward. Uh, but more often than not, I think in industry, even as of the last time I was working with this, uh, it was there are a lot of benefits to making your the, the API of your backend something more generic and industry standard, like GraphQL or Swagger or uh, any like of a REST things. API. You mean? So yeah, or a REST API exactly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because that gives you that gives you the ability to consume from that API using other standard right. tools um, or different front ends like mobile apps and stuff like this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
So that was Castor RPC. So this is a remote procedural call, right? Um, that was yeah, the part. Um, yeah, it's, <laughs> the acronym is remote procedure call, but of course in Clojure, it's not good unless it returns a value. So <laughs> we, um, one of the projects along the way that came out of this was a project called CLJSON. Mm-hmm. Which was it's an example of one of those projects that comes out of solving one problem and then making you know becoming aware of new problems that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were sending these closure values back and forth, and at the time, at least the closure script reader uh, was extremely slow um, and impossibly slow, really, because there's just no way that a mass of closure script is going to be faster than you know handwritten C code that's in the json parser in chrome mm-hmm. right. uh, but we had an idea to encode closure data in terms of json data so basically using json as an intermediate representation of closure data a tagged mm-hmm. intermediate representation so that leveraged the speed of the browser's json parser but allowed you to you know deserialize into closure objects or closure script objects using transients reasonably mm-hmm. efficiently. Um, and that worked great. That, that like we were at a point where our app was too slow to use and we had that idea and made that thing. And then it was, it was usable. <laughs> um, and then later we felt really gratified when uh, Rich and Cognitech introduced a similar thing that was better in every way called transit. Mm-hmm. So but it's always, it's always fun when you, when you have an idea or you make something and then someone you really admire later um, you know validates the validates the idea by making something it's really cool mm-hmm. so when you were developing this did you get to this so from what, the description you're giving um, my understanding is that you want to move sort of the client state to the server with castra and have the cells on the server is, is am I right with understanding um, this? Yes, that was the original sort of semi-philosophical late night waving beers and cigarettes around kind of idea. <laughs> and in pursuit of that idea is how we arrived at this much simpler and direct um, call functions thing. Right. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think this is also the... so. When Misha gave the talk at Closure Track, he talked about this kind of three different types of states, right? Mm-hmm. The user state, the application state, and the persistent state. Mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, certainly as closureists, we're, you know, trained to think in terms of states and now mm-hmm. in terms of life cycles. And mm-hmm. um, from a more retrospective angle, I think these are the larger problems of building web apps and UIs is the, I've heard it called reconciliation is one term that, that, that has some technical meaning. Um, at least when David Nolan was working on things similar to relay or, uh, Ohm next, Ohm next kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, relay. Yes. Mm-hmm. Relay. But yeah. Uh, and I think conscientiousness about these data relationships is, part of why UIs are so hard. And I think, uh, so I haven't seen Misha's talk in a while, but I definitely remember talking with him about these three three places state can be. Um, but I think each of them, each of those things decomposes into disparate sets of states that you want to keep separate for your own sanity. Like for example, there's users, you know, state builds up in the browser. Um, but different UI components even have their own little life cycles. Um, and, you know, like a, a React component has internal fields that are managed uh, as part of its life cycle. And those, those, the value of those fields is different from the, mm-hmm. you know, the value of the DOM elements that represent it. So in Clojure, the other place where we run across this sort of infinity of states is when things are let bound. You know, we have a way to create a little world anonymously and those worlds can compose and nest in ways that are totally arbitrary, um, you know, user defined. And uh, I think in retrospect, the pursuit 
of Hoplon and, and the pursuit of some vision of like the best way to make a web app is trying to find the most general way of organizing your code that is still gives you power, like still is leverage over the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, so finding the balance of generality versus leverage. Uh, and Hoplon is a point on that somewhere. And other frameworks, I think, are in the same sort of wheelhouse or area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's all about state, as we know, <laughs> since the early days. Right. Right, right. Yeah, and I think this is still like very hard problem actually to figure out like this. As you mentioned, there's three different kinds of state, right? You have your state in a database, you have your user interface state, and then whatever your application is going through. Right. Yeah, and and you know, we're compelled as programmers to make things modular. Um, mm-hmm. But the trouble with these UI components is that their behavior is dependent on external and internal state. So even if you're a closure person and your your UI component is uh, you know item potent or function like, you know it's data in and behavior out. Like even if you follow that par- paradigm, you still you're still presented with the problem of how do you categorize and organize the information that goes in? Like what is the shape of the data that your pure function responds to? Mm. And that takes you into the problems of polymorphism. Uh, which are themselves, you know, <laughs> a tar pit. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I've, I've after closure, I, I did a bunch of programming and other paradigms, mm-hmm. uh, mostly JavaScript, but some C and C plus plus, and more recently Common Lisp. And uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't solved it to my satisfaction. So you can expect more frameworks <laughs> to come out of me at some point. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, will, will this be closure specific frameworks or? Uh, probably, probably common Lisp. My my heart has been mostly in common Lisp for the past two or three years. Uh, as just for recreation, I I don't use it professionally. Um, mm-hmm. But about a year and a half ago, I started on a dialect of common or a uh, implementation of common Lisp that compiles to JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been working on that on and off since then. And that's a means towards you know the framework of my dreams. That is. Uh, TBD. <laughs> I see. And what is uh, so compelling to you for uh, with Common Lisp? Well, Common Lisp has a large number of really compelling compelling features, and I'm I've only ever used a, a fraction of them. But um, I think the biggest difference between something like Common Lisp and something like Closure is how little the language. Um, supports or detracts from your ability to, to write code in a particular paradigm. Mm. Um, so as a library author, you have a lot more flexibility because the language's performance envelope is, uh, you know, like the language is, is uh, as close to fast as the people who created it could figure out to do. Um, mm-hmm. So where, you know, Rich made closure for a world where everything was multi-threaded, everything had lots of memory, and everything was connected to the network, uh, among other conclusions about most industrial code, which I think are still totally valid. And a common list comes from a time when things had to be more efficient and when um, uh, there wasn't as much sharing of code. So people at different places of work usually had to come up with their own libraries. Uh, Mm -hmm. and so there wasn't as much of a need to coordinate around uh, language APIs. Um, So, yeah, I think as as someone who's interested in finding a more precise solution or at least a a way of looking at this, a set of tools, an API that is more satisfying to me, like falls in that continuum of, of leverage and generality um i think people have and not just me but any list programmer has more leverage or more uh more ability to do that mm. um it's just a lower level language basically but uh, you know there's a lot of other things that come with being a lower level language 
So it's, you know, it's not better or worse. It's just a different thing. And depending on where somebody is on their trajectory, it may or may not be interesting to them to use. Um, all right. So maybe let's try to hop back on the Hoplon. Yeah. Um, uh, is there anything else we should talk about when it comes to Hoplon or? Um, well, I you'll have to tell me. I mean, is the dominant thing now re- in ClojureScript world uh, reagent? Yeah. So reagent, 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 and reframe. And reframe. Right. So rea- So I would say reframe is like a superset of reagent, mm-hmm. if I can call it this way. Uh, it gives you this, uh, you know, global atom where you keep your state for most of the things. Um, then, of course, there is uh, full crow, um, which is sort of, uh, you know, the whole of the all of the ideas that David David Nolan came up with. Omnext, mm-hmm. um, Tony K forked this at one point and created full crow. Um, there is a RAM li- library created by um, Nikita Prokopov. Um, there is Rum, also, yes. yeah. Oh, data also, script is something I wanted to throw in. Uh, sure. So I think I wanted to. There's actually two things that I want to mention. I don't, I've got a few more minutes here. Um, Go ahead. The first is that. Uh, so thanks for illuminating the state of the ecosystem currently for me. I think it's safe to say that Hoplon is closest to Reagent, mm-hmm. um, in the sense that, like Reagent, Hoplon kind of demands an approach to higher level organization. And I'm not aware, I'm aware of a few uh, libraries in the Hoplon ecosystem that build on and around Hoplon to present Mm -hmm. a higher level organization. Um, Mm -hmm. One of them was called UI, just lowercase u, lowercase i, by uh, somebody who goes by Jumblerg, which there's information about. Um, But I would also say there are opportunities still to build on Hoplon. for anyone who's interested, uh, especially anyone coming from the reagent or uh, reframe side who is curious how, how the other, I would say other half, but it's more like how the other 3% lives. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah. Uh, uh, and then of course, it's not coupled to boot either. So that doesn't need to be something that scares you off, anyone off necessarily anymore. Uh, as far as I know, I, I think the person who worked with it last and talked about it got it working with Shadow CLJS. So, uh, right, Thomas Heller. Thomas Heller made the build tool. The person I have in mind was someone in the Hoplon community who made a, an app, uh, made a Hoplon app uh, using Shadow as their build tool, and it seemed to go well. Um, so, isn't that Matthew? No, it was somebody else. I see. Okay, good. Yeah, Never mind. no, it was somebody else. Uh, I can right. try and find a reference to that and send it to you from the notes, but yeah, it's somebody right. else. Um, um, yeah, the other thing you mentioned was DataScript. Yes, thank you. So one of the... So when I worked at Relevance, I worked with um, Datomic, and I later used Datomic uh, commercially, although the product we used it for that, that company went under and I wasn't able to actually technically use it in production. <laughs> um, but um, I'd always had an interest in logic, the programming paradigm. My dad was a philosopher and a logician, and he was the only person I knew who liked, who preferred prologue <laughs> to anything else. Um, I see. And um, I never... I don't think I really understood the appeal until I started to work with Datomic flavored data log. Mm-hmm. Um, I think something I would throw into a previous retrospective observation is the relational model is another angle on the equality problem. And the relational model defines equality in terms of set membership. And that's the constituent property of things like prolog and also of things like datomic uh anybody who's worked with data log knows that you know um when you run a data log query it cans you back sets with atoms inside and not not closure atoms you know like scalar values like one or a string or a or a uuid or a date or something like that and you'll notice that you don't get back composite structures from a data log query. At least originally, I think now they have things, what do they call it, the hydrating query or something? Um, pull, the pull syntax. 
Right. Um, yeah. this is but at a theoretical right. level, there is no higher. There is no. Uh, there are no trees. It's relations, and um, so that as an alternative to a, to a concept of equality that could form an approach toward managing relationships between components, I think DataScript is, is really interesting. Um, and so early in Javelin work, like around 2013, there was a, an, a, there was a pre-datomic data log floating around that I, I believe was part of the old closure contrib that was <laughs> like, this is from like 2008 or 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, it was a it was a version of data log that's a little sort of clunkier to use than datomic data log, and it was inspired more by the original data log than um, Rich Hickey's version. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. But one of the early experiments I did was I took these data log databases and I put them in cells, and made a reactive relational thing, and uh, it's really cool. And I think people are doing this to a degree in closure script still to the extent that I see references to data script still. Um, but I think that that's an interesting area of exploration. And I, I think anybody working in that, I would encourage to, to follow that um, because uh, yeah, I think there, there's a lot of interesting properties of the relational model. And I think they're not fully explored. I think there might be benefits to UI there that we have yet to, to leverage. Mm-hmm. So, sort of hand wavy philosophical stuff. I feel like I should be waving a cigarette around now. <laughs> I stop. <laughs> I stop smoking. So maybe my ideas are slightly less crazy. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's it's all really exciting. I mean, even though I've um, am not currently using Closure Script and haven't used Hoplon in a long time, it's still really exciting. I still, you know, follow these things, um, mm-hmm. and I think it's, uh, you know. I think we I think we have yet to reach web app single page app utopia. <laughs> but right. uh I'm looking forward to that day. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh did you maybe have a chance to look at Crux database? I did not. That is is, is that a that's a Juxt project? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know of it, but I, I know very little of it and I haven't used it myself. Is it right. is it they, does it relate to this? Yeah, they also use data log for queries. Mm. Um, but I think the difference is that, uh, you know, Datomic gives you like the edges of uh, information, um, the values, where in the Crux database you store documents, so you store maps. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is, there's, there, there's, there's, um, it's not always the case. It, like it probably, it may or may not be true to say that Datomic is lower level, um, and that you could just simply build something like a document database over Datomic. I mean, strictly speaking, that's true, but it all boils down to the particular affordances of the API, and you know the nuts and bolts that I'm sure the Crux people have figured out, and they've arrived yeah, at a point right. on the on the uh, generality power continuum that is optimal. Um, right. Yeah. I don't. I don't mean to compare. Uh, you know, Datomic to Crux, and I'm by all means not an expert. So, bro, you should not listen to me when I talk about <laughs> Crux. No, uh, no. It's. But, I mean, that's another thing that has been a theme in my journey is the overlap between programming language stuff and database stuff. Right. Um, very early in my career, when I was first working with Rich Hickey, he suggested, and the idea of a compiler that managed its state internally as a database, and he had some kind of vision or design for a database-based uh, compiler. And if you look at you know, the way a, a modern dynamic language does dispatch, it's basically doing a database query. And they use all the same techniques like jitting and uh, all that stuff. So there, there, there's a lot of overlap there. And I think, I mean, Datomic is an example, and maybe Crux too, of the, of the fuzziness between data structures in your programming language and the data structures in your database. Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly, you know, there are, there are interesting ways to, to blur that line. Um, right. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I think also when it comes to coming back to cracks, maybe quickly, I think the the one of the big points of the features is it's uh, bitemporal. So there are two timestamps uh, mm. where in Datomic you have one. So you have the, uh, again, I'm I'm sure we'll have a podcast on cracks, so maybe we'll explore. It sounds it. like you should. I, would, I will definitely listen to it. Yeah, uh, it will come, I promise. <laughs> So until then, let me just yeah shut up. Yeah, and... no, I'll, I'll I'll look into it. I, I appreciate you mentioning it. Um, um, yeah, it sounds cool. Cool. Um, is there anything else um, we should talk about? Uh, I regarding Hoplon. I I don't know if you like you said you're sort of uh, in in between inside and outside the community. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm inside and I'm outside, but I think all of the things I like about Hoplon, I like even more now and i think if i had the opportunity to start an app greenfield i would you know and the other operational stars were in alignment i would use closure script mm-hmm. um but i would tell people now that everything i liked about hoplon five years ago is still true <laughs> it's comparatively little code compared to almost every other framework i've seen even even closure script ones and i don't you know i don't mean to detract from the idea of something having a lot of code but I think that if anyone's interested in working with Hoplon, they'll be pleasantly surprised at how little code it is. Uh, because I think that lack of code decreases the cost of, cost of total ownership over time. Like, you know, Hoplon is very small. We've encountered very few bugs um, in production. And if there is some kind of bug with Hoplon, it's going to be relatively easy for you to, to figure out and fix. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is that we've arrived a way of making a web app that I believe, I mean, I, I believe has stood the test of time. Again, I don't follow developments in the closure script world as closely as I used to, but um, you know, I think the fact that it doesn't rely on react uh, mm-hmm. may or may not contribute to its longevity, certainly to its stability. Um, you know, right. the H list part is ridiculously small in that, that process I mentioned for updating the DOM is ridiculously straightforward. So mm-hmm. we've had, you know, there it, it really it just relies on the basic browser APIs, which have not changed at all and will probably never change. Um, so I think it's it's still relevant and interesting as a tool for closure script people to to check out, uh, even in this day and age. And um, mm-hmm. I will uh, I haven't been inhabiting the the Hoplon channel on Clojureians. But I'll make a point of hanging out in there in case anybody hears this and has other questions um, or, is, or is curious about uh, anything related to Hoplon. And I might, uh, I know the the other folks who use it are really busy, but I can also uh, guilt trip Misha into uh, sitting, hanging around in Slack too, in case anybody hears nice. this and wants to come learn more. Cool. Absolutely. Um, all right. Um, I think we can slowly wind down. What do you think? Yeah, it sounds good. Cool. Well, once again, thank you for uh, taking the time and talking about Hoplon. It's been great. And it's been great also to hear sort of the retrospective on all of those things. And you say you will not change a lot, which means it's really um, uh, stood up to the to the all of the ideas that you had. Well, thank you for, for the opportunity to talk about this stuff. Um, and it's important that I clarify that it's not just my ideas that have stood the test of time and that most of the ideas come from Misha Niskin, who I collaborated closely mm-hmm. on this with for, right. for many years. Um, and then there's a, there's a short list of other people who have contributed substantially to, to these projects over time. Um, Matthew Ratsky, flyboarder mm-hmm. on GitHub. He's the guy who, uh, I mean, he's a he's a power user of both Boot and Hoplon, and he's now the maintainer of both things and has been for some years. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Chris Meekeljohn was someone I met around the time we were working with FRP, and he actually made he ported Flapjacks to ClojureScript, and we used some of the ideas from that implementation in the first version of Javelin. So I'm grateful to him for for doing that work. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had a bunch of uh, other Hoplon power users who we had great discussions with over the years, and they contributed both code and ideas. Um, they include Marcelo Nomoto, uh, Tomas Herman, Jumblerg, who made UI, 
the the sort of meta framework. And Daniel Neal gave a great one of the first talks on Hoplon uh, and Skills Matter in London. And Clinton Dreisbach is somebody I've I worked with on a bunch of stuff, but he also did gave talks on Hoplon and helped us develop some of the early ideas. Um, Ruslan Prokopchuk contributed some code. And David Meister is another person who contributed code. So it was really a collaborative effort over many years, people coming and going uh, that keeps on rolling. So thank you to everyone who's helped take it along take it along the way. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or any other platform you're listening to. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it, discuss it on your own podcast, and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshe.com. That's J-A-C-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thank you for your support of this show.